You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, visit sojournmontrose.org. So we've arrived at the end of our Holy Week journey. Just, just one week ago, Jesus was preparing his disciples for his imminent death, right? If you were here on Palm Sunday, you'll recall the three times in Mark that Jesus foretells of this moment coming. The moment not only of his death, but also of his resurrection. And he reiterated for them the, the paradox that this was going to be. And, and he reiterated it not only so that they would know and see it when it happened, but also so that they would know that really the, the paradox, this, this life being born out of death, this kingdom in which the last are first, in which the ones who are the leaders, the king comes not to be served, but to serve, that that extends throughout all of the things that Jesus has come to do. And even though Jesus was explicitly clear in those three predictions in Mark of his death and of his resurrection, we find ourselves in a moment in Mark chapter 16 where the disciples are scattered and they are forlorn. Their their company is broken, right? The fellowship is, is broken. And if you uh, know who my favorite author is, you know what that is a reference to. The fellowship has been broken. Jesus is dead. The Sabbath is past. A full day of death. And now, in the only Easter event that is recorded by all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, three women, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome, Visit the tomb of Jesus. And this is what happens. It says in verse 1, When the Sabbath day was past, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint Jesus. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us? from the entrance of the tomb. And so these women who are coming to visit Jesus in His tomb are coming to partake in what is essentially an ancient burial rite, a a, a custom by which they would honor and care for uh, the body of Jesus in the tomb. And what that makes clear for us this morning, brothers and sisters, is that These women are coming to this tomb with no doubt in their mind that Jesus is dead. If we were to bring it forward to sort of our current day traditions, what they are doing, they're going to the graveside to lay a flower down in honor of the deceased. They are going there with full expectation that that grave is closed. They're going there with full expectation that the body within that grave is still there, is still lifeless. Its heart does not beat. They're not going there to witness a revelation. 
a resurrection. And some of us may have walked in the room this morning in the same way. Where we expect, or perhaps suspect, that all of this hoopla about this guy Jesus is hoopla over someone who is ultimately still dead. And as they're making their way to the tomb, these three women realize that they're only partially prepared. So they've come with the spices, but they realize that they haven't made arrangements for the tomb to be rolled away from the stone, uh, the, the stone to be rolled away from the tomb so that they might enter and pay their last respects. They haven't brought anyone with them to help, and they're just betting on the fact that someone, anyone, will be there to help them. And so again, not only by what they're bringing with them, but also by the content of their conversation on the road to see Jesus, it is clear that there was not the slightest idea of the possibility that Jesus might not be there. That Jesus might in fact be resurrected. And so again, let's, let's remind ourselves that this is happening in the context of the fact that Mark even, in, in his account alone, has told us of at least three times that he has told them this would happen. And yet, this was entirely unexpected for these three women. And so these faithful women, faithful though they were, still expected Jesus to be dead. What happens next? Verse 4, it says this, And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe. And they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed, you seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified, he has risen, he is not here. See the place where they laid him. And so conveniently, the gamble of the women pays off, right? We're bringing spices, but we don't know who's going to help us with this giant stone in front of the tomb. And they come and they find the stone is already rolled away. And yet, right, like, I don't know if you've ever been in that horror movie where you're like, don't go behind the door. Don't go behind the door. And there, of course, the person in the horror movie is totally oblivious, right? Like, whatever, like, it's totally normal. We have a similar moment here with these three women. They suspect nothing, right? They're looking at a tomb with a stone rolled back. Nobody's there. And they just walk in. I don't know about you, but for me, that's weird. I would be at least somewhat worried, right? I would knock or I would call out or something, right? But it tells us here that they don't hesitate. They just enter in. Again, what is this, what is this telling us about where their mind is at? They're, they're walking into this thinking, surely there's a rational explanation. Surely there's a reason. Again, it has not yet crossed their mind that Jesus might be 
resurrected. And so they enter the tomb, and upon entering, they come face to face with a young man clothed in white who immediately says to them, Do not fear. This is a common refrain throughout the Bible, but um, it's often, almost always, said by messengers from God. And so this young man who in other accounts of this story is known to be an angel, a messenger of God, clothed in some measure of God's glory, in that moment immediately needs to dispel their fear. And after doing so, he makes this Amazing proclamation. He says, don't fear, don't be alarmed. And he says, I know why you're here. You're seeking Jesus. And not just any Jesus, but the Jesus of Nazareth. You're seeking Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. So yes, that Jesus. We are, there's no, right, there's no ambiguity who we're talking about here, right? We didn't go to the wrong tomb. We didn't mix up names, right? The Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He's the one you're looking for. He is not here. He is risen. He is risen. Here's what we should notice. This proclamation of the young man, the angel of God, comes before any one of these women has seen the risen Christ. Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. And then the angel invites the women in to see the empty tomb for themselves. Now, no matter how skeptical they may have been or you might be that this Sunday morning or that Sunday morning, there was a question that had to be answered. What has happened to Jesus' body? Right? No matter how, no matter how rational the mind frame of these these women must have been in this moment, right? We saw Jesus die. He's dead. Clearly he's dead. We're going to his tomb. We entered into the tomb. Surely he's dead. What has happened to the body? There is an explanation that has to be made for the fact that there's an empty tomb. And listen, there's a thousand explanations for it, right? And we could walk through each one of them ad nauseum. And we could talk about all the reasons why it makes logical sense to believe in a resurrection in light of the empty tomb. We can talk about how, how the fact that if the Jews had the body, they would have produced it post-haste as a matter of quelling this rebellion finally, once and for all, keeping good relationship between Rome and the Jewish peoples, right? It's, it's utterly in their interest. We could talk about the reaction of the disciples, how they somehow turned from this fearful, disjointed, separated and broken fellowship into a tight-knit, essentially like special forces for Jesus overnight. And how that makes no sense apart from, again, a resurrected Jesus, a tomb that is empty, not because someone took the body, but because the body is made new.
But it's not ultimately about the empty tomb. Or even the many rational reasons or rationalizations or logical arguments that we could make for a resurrection in light of an empty tomb. And that's why I love where Mark finishes his gospel account. And some of you are looking at your Bibles and you're going, wait a minute, we're only going to verse 8 and there's 20 in there. And we could talk about verses 9 to 20 in another time, in another place. But suffice it to say, (laughs) we believe that it ends at 8 and that it does so purposefully. And this is what happens. So the angel proclaims this good news message, this message about a risen Jesus, a Jesus who is in fact not dead, but is now alive, and that is why the tomb is empty. And he says to these women, but go, tell Jesus' disciples and Peter that Jesus is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And then it says that they went out. The women went out and they fled from the tomb. For trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone. For they were afraid. What a weird way to end it, right? This is why so many people want verse 9 through 20 to be there. Because it's an awkward ending. The women are skeptical, right? They leave the tomb and it's not immediate proclamation. Now, of course, we we go to other gospel accounts to fill out the rest of the story for us. And we, we know that they do, in fact go to the disciples, that they do end up delivering this message. But in the Gospel of Mark, we end with fear and trembling. We end with skepticism. We end with what the heck just happened. They haven't seen Jesus yet. All they know is that some guy dressed in clothes that they've never seen before, sitting in an empty tomb, has told them that Jesus is risen. And they're probably asking that same question that Reed mentioned at the beginning. He is risen. Now listen, I think sometimes we arrogantly look down upon the first followers of Jesus. We assume that there's an intellectual gap, that they're somehow less able to reason than we are, that they're more eager to leave the boundaries of rational thought. But the women leave that tomb trembling, astonished, and they say nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Now listen to me, that comes, remember what that comes on the heels of. It comes on the heels of Jesus' own words, an empty tomb that has now been explained for them by an angel of God. It's not enough. They don't know what to make of it. 
Now again, as we harmonize the accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we come to find out that these women do in fact believe, that they do in fact speak, that they do in fact encounter the resurrected Jesus. But one of the most endearing things about this gospel account is that it does not spare the disciples from the searchlight of honesty. Though Mark goes out of his way to stress the faithfulness of the women disciples at the cross and at the burial of Jesus, he does not spare them when he recounts their shocked and fearful reaction to the angelic presence in the tomb. He doesn't spare them. He doesn't make apologies for them. He doesn't make them look better. He doesn't edit out the awkward parts. And that's so helpful this morning, brothers and sisters. Because I think sometimes it's possible for us to see some of the figures in the gospel story as some kind of supermen or superwomen or, or the converse, just idiots. But Mark never allows us to indulge this illusion of super faith or supermen or superwomen in God's kingdom, faith and discipleship didn't come any easier for Mary Magdalene or Mary, mother of James or Salome. It didn't come any easier for them. They had their doubts. They had their fears. And yet they went on believing and they ended up laying the foundation for us 2,000 years later. Could you imagine that? Could you imagine if in that moment, just by some, some, some measure of God's grace, they were given a view into the future of River Oaks Theater in 2018. Where a group of men and women that probably outnumber their current crew are worshiping the risen Jesus are repeating the words of the angels that were said to them. That this Jesus of Nazareth that was crucified is risen, that He's no longer here, that He is gone before us, and that, he, that we, like them, have also encountered Him on the road. So listen. I'm not standing up here thinking or believing that because there was an empty tomb 2,000 years ago that neither you nor I nor any historian or archaeologist since can explain that because of that all of a sudden now all of your skepticism is or should be overcome. I think ultimately it's a, it's a fool's errand. It's, it's, it's one that many Christians have pursued in, in, in the right place. With the right frame of mind, with the right heart, with the right hope. Listen, if I could just, if I could just remove these logical barriers for people. But listen... The invitation to examine Jesus' resting place is 
unmistakable evidence of an empty tomb. So we, we know that to be true. The, to, the tomb was empty, right? That's not a disputable fact that the tomb was empty. Now we can debate all day about why or how it became empty. But I'm going to say something that might surprise you this morning. The empty tomb does not prove the resurrection of Jesus. And the New Testament never tries to use it as proof of the resurrection. Already in the early church, in Matthew 28, 13, we find out that opponents of the resurrection were already explaining the empty tomb away on the ground that Jesus' body had been stolen. The empty tomb is only one of several facts that attend the resurrection. But the resurrection is what makes that empty tomb meaningful. The empty tomb testifies that the Jesus who died as a bodily being was raised as a bodily being in a historical place and point in time. Along with early Christianity as a whole, Mark is interested not in the facts so much as he is in the faith in the resurrected Jesus. Not in the proofs, not in the proofs of his existence. It's an encounter with the resurrected Lord, not the empty tomb that produces faith. And again, that's why Mark is such an awkward place to end. Because there's no encounter yet. They've been confronted with the facts that have attended this event, but they haven't sorted through them. They haven't made sense of them. There's nothing that has allowed them to sort of collect for themselves what they believe to be a right explanation of what's taken place. And it's because they haven't encountered Jesus yet. And so when I got up this morning, and when I was thinking about preaching this message that I get to preach at, at least yearly, and quite, on, quite honestly probably comprises some part of every sermon, this fact that Jesus is alive and resurrected for us, and that that means something. When I got up this morning, and when I was Thinking about that when I was praying over that, I wasn't praying that my logical arguments would be enough to overcome your skepticism. What I was praying for, for you and for me, is that we would encounter Jesus together. And that as we encounter Him, our faith would either begin for the first time or be strengthened for the days to come. And so let me be clear this morning. God is inviting us to an encounter with Jesus. Not just the facts that attend His resurrection. Not just the logical arguments that we can sort of dive into to satiate our need for rationality. Jesus is inviting us to encounter Him in His Word. And listen, He's inviting us, inviting us to encounter Him in spite of the fact that we might not be expecting it. Listen, these women weren't expecting to encounter Jesus. or Well, they were, but in a different form. Namely, a dead one. And it doesn't matter this morning if you're skeptical. Because the disciples were too. That's why they're scattered. That's why they're not even at the tomb. What difference does it make? 
It doesn't matter if you're not sure what it all means yet. These women had to go and sort it out for a second. And I love that Peter gets mentioned by name by the angel because it also doesn't matter this morning. If we've previously denied Jesus, the fact is that Jesus, if we are willing, if we are open, He will encounter us as He told us. He will come to us. He will reveal Himself to us. If we would just open ourselves to the possibility, if we would allow ourselves for a moment to entertain the fact that there is in fact a resurrected Christ who not only has died for our sins, but has risen in victory over them and longs even now to make Himself known to us, brothers and sisters, maybe, just maybe, will be encountered by something more glorious, more wonderful, more incredible. I use the word incredible for a reason than just the facts. Incredible meaning not credible, not believable, not rational, outside of the realm of our ability to rationalize Him. And so listen, for all of us this morning, there's a word of grace you will see Jesus as He has told you. You will see Him in the place that He has told you. You will see Him. Right? That's why we say every week that we go to the Scriptures because it's there that we see the person and the work of Jesus most clearly revealed. So you're being invited, brothers and sisters, to an encounter And it is only that encounter that will help us make sense of the empty tomb, not the other way around. Now there's a lot that comes along with being a follower of Jesus. But this, the resurrection of Jesus, is what Paul says of first importance. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul tells us that if Jesus is not raised, then we are most to be pitied because we have a hope that is for this life only. If we leave it at Jesus died for us, then we are and rightly should be crushed by guilt. Crushed by guilt that a punishment that was due us for our sin was leveraged upon another unjustly. Maybe, maybe no generation should understand that more, right? Like, we are hyper-individualists. I do me, man, and you do you. And whatever, whatever comes with you being you, you bear those consequences for yourself. I'll bear the consequences for myself. And yet here we have Jesus doing the exact opposite. If we leave it at Jesus died for our sins, there is no good news in that. But if we remember that not only did Jesus die for our sins, but that He was raised for us, that 
that God took His lifeless body out of the grave, rose it to new life again, to life and to breath and to health and to fine motor skills and to speech and to salivating and everything else, then we are drenched in an eternal and wondrous hope Because the gospel then isn't simply a message of penance, but of new life. It's not just about managing those parts of our lives that are, that are less seemly, that, that, that we would prefer other people didn't see, but rather it's a way to become something entirely different. It's a way to be rid of the flesh. It's a way to be rid of all that ails us finally and fully and forever in that we die to what was old in us and we are made alive just as Christ was made alive. So this is the reality of the resurrection and this is the reality ultimately of the gospel of God's kingdom. This paradoxical kingdom, right? Where we've already talked about last week that the the last are the first. That the king doesn't come to be served, but to serve. This kingdom where the one who would take up his life must first lose it is also the kingdom where things that are dead namely you and I, are resurrected. Are resurrected by the grace and the power and the glory of God for all of eternity. And so listen, if you're not a believer in the room this morning, that that is what you are being invited to encounter. You're being invited to encounter this God who operates in this way, who flips the world upside down in, in these strange and odd ways, and you don't have to have it all figured out this morning. But if you would open yourself to the possibility, if you would go to Galilee, Maybe, just maybe, Jesus will meet you there. And what was just facts will be sorted out by an encounter. And you will be transferred from the kingdom of death into the kingdom of life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Again, God, we're grateful to be gathered together. Grateful, God, that we have an all-encompassing gospel, Lord, a gospel that confronts every manner of our ailment, Father, that not only deals with our sin, but deals with our death, that raises us to new life in Christ. Lord, I pray for those of us that are Christians in the room this morning, God, where maybe, maybe we've been tempted to, to walk into the rational for comfort. Lord, to, tr- to, to sort of try to make this whole thing more intellectually palatable, not only for others that we have conversations with, but for ourselves, God. 
I pray that you would wreck us with a renewed encounter. Because it's in an encounter that our faith is stirred. It's in an encounter, God, that we come to believe that Jesus is in fact risen. Lord, I pray for those of us who are not believers in the room this morning. I pray, Father, that they would have that encounter. God, there's, there's nothing, again, that we can do to, to conjure that, Father. There's a stone that we can't roll away. But God, you can, and you do. There's plenty of evidence in this room alone, not to mention around the world. And so, Father, we pray that by your Spirit, according to your grace, through the work of Jesus, people would encounter you this morning in your glorious and resurrected state. And that we might be transferred from the kingdom of eternal death to the kingdom of eternal life. In Jesus' name, amen.